I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Luke 24, 36 through 48. Now, did you hear that? We're in Luke. (laughs) I hope you're all shaking your heads, wondering, we've been in Mark. We did a little bit in John. Yeah, we're in Luke. So, Alan, take this away. Why are we in Luke? Well, one of the challenges of the Revised Common Lectionary Gospel readings in the season of Easter is that they tend to piecemeal um, various accounts, especially primarily from John 13 through 17, the farewell discourses in the three year cycle and essentially basically the gospel readings if you go if you look at all three years they take us on a tour of those farewell discourses with his disciples in john's gospel now luke 24 shows up at least once each year and when i first noticed this i was like (laughs) what is this about but having having looked at the passage more carefully i think i have an answer to that so i'll save that uh, for as a as a teaser all right very good very good so let's set us up what's happening in today's scripture well our lesson for today follows luke's account of the women at the empty tomb that's the beginning of luke chapter 24 and then you have this story that's only found in luke's gospel of Jesus' encounter with two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus, which was about six miles from Jerusalem. And I have to confess, that's like my favorite part. I didn't, I didn't want to go back and actually do what we were asked to do. Yeah. So <laughs> I had to, I had to not get stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so after he revealed himself to these uh, disciples uh, in the breaking of the bread, as it said, and he opened the scriptures for them, they ran all the way back to Jerusalem where they found that others had seen the Lord as well. So here we have a situation where we have Luke and John having some similarities in these past, these, in this dialogue, um, uh, are, they refer- are Luke and John referencing the same material? Is this uh, get, ma- Explain how these are similar but different, I guess. Well, and this is the answer to the question, I think, of why we're jumping from, from John chapter 20 to Luke 24, 36-48, because um, there's a great deal of overlap between uh, John's account in John 20 and especially this passage in, in Luke 24, 36-48. <clears throat> and, and the similarities are both content. Um, he demonstrates his physical presence with them. Uh, there's a suggestion of eating food, not in John 20, but in John 21. Mm-hmm. And the focus is on Jerusalem as opposed mm-hmm. to Galilee. Mm-hmm. But there's also verbal parallels. For mm-hmm. example, he himself stood in their midst and peace be, peace with, be with you, you. among yeah. others. Yeah. 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 On the other hand, there are a number of words and constructions that are hapax legomena, which means they occur only once in the whole New Testament. Wow. Uh, in Luke's gospel here, that suggests that the that the evangelist may be utilizing um, a tradition that someone else wrote down uh, initially. Hmm. Um, and some of the words are brosimon for for something to eat and broiled fish. Um, and uh, sarkakai ostea, flesh and bone. Um, that's that's the only time that occurs in the New Testament. So um, 
if we if we see then that John and Luke are sharing perhaps a common original tradition, that tradition then would have contained the proof of Jesus' resurrection by showing them his body. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke says, you know, see my hands and feet. Uh, John says, see my hands inside. Uh, and by his eating food, the broiled fish, and his commission to the disciples. Um, mm-hmm. which also bears some similarities in Luke and, and John. You know, as I'm thinking about this, these single instances and, and why Luke is using them, is there any thought to that it's his, simply his audience and this is words that would be similar to particularly knowledgeable by his audience, or is that an incorrect well, not everybody buys the argument that because these words are found nowhere else in the New Testament mm-hmm. but this passage, that Luke could not have written them. But there's just a if you if you if you really dig into the word usage of Luke's passage here, mm-hmm. there's a lot of unique language here mm-hmm. that's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And so, yeah, I I found I found that to be convincing. The other thing is that there are. There are um, parallels um, in in John. The parallels in John, but there are other parallels, uh, including um, uh, a tradition that Ignatius cites in his letter to the Smyrnians, mm, okay. and including parallels with the longer ending of Mark. Now, okay. you know, we don't believe that was original, but it does. It, it does stand around. as a witness mm-hmm. to the way in which the gospel tradition was developed. Yeah. So. It could be, in other words, that that Luke may have written this, but borrowing from. Yes. Well, it seems like both tradition. Luke and John are borrowing from um, a tradition source, that preceded another, their gospel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's move on through the text. Um, how did the disciples respond to Jesus when they saw him? Well, Luke's report is is really quite unique in all the gospels, because. Only Luke really reports this mixed response, uh, not just for Thomas, mm-hmm. but all the disciples. You know, John says they rejoiced when they saw the Lord, and that's really more typical of of the responses that we see mm-hmm. uh, to the resurrection, the, the appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, but Luke says of all of them that they were startled and terrified and mm-hmm. that they thought that they were seeing a ghost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's this is language for a response to Jesus' uh, post-resurrection appearances that's only found in this passage in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, interestingly, reminiscent of the story of Jesus but walking on the water, the water toward the disciples mm-hmm. um, in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And and although they use a different language for a different word for ghost a lot there's some there's some linguistic similarities and it's interesting that luke doesn't have an account of jesus walking on the water right. um and so you know it makes you wonder you know right jesus response to them is also similar to what we find in the accounts of his ministry why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts I mean, the way I read this was it's almost as if Luke has framed the response of the disciples to be no different from the way in which they responded to him when he did amazing things in his ministry. Now, this is this is distinct because, as we saw with Mark, you know, once you get to the cross, Mark's theology presumes that now people can understand who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. In Luke's gospel, not even the cross, not even the appearance of the resurrected Jesus mm-hmm. enables them to respond in faith and to understand. 
something else has to happen and and we'll see what that something else okay. is yeah hang on to that then so let's keep moving on um luke's account so tells us a great deal about the risen christ and so tell us that yeah, in Luke's account of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to the gathered disciples, there's really there's this extended emphasis on Jesus' bodily presence, and we saw that last week when we were talking about John's account. Uh, but you know, whereas John simply says that he stood among them, mm-hmm. uh, Luke really kind of goes over the top. You know, he stood among them. He said, you know here are my you know here are my hands and my feet mm-hmm. he says that twice mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he eats food uh, in their presence a piece of broiled fish and, and really this is the only place in the entire gospel tradition where we have any um, notion of the risen Jesus eating food mm-hmm. uh, so and again only only John and Luke have any kind of reference to the wounds inflicted on Jesus body and, and it really does pose, Luke's account here does pose sign of sort of an interesting parallel to the story of Thomas, where Jesus invites them to touch mm-hmm. him and see. And so in, in, in Luke's gospel, he says, you know, see that a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. You know, as, as I'm looking at this, I keep thinking of in Luke's um, in Luke's community, if there's really this thought that this is Jesus was an apparition or something, I mean, if, if that's part of the problem that he's trying to address. Well, we know, for example, from First Corinthians 15, that uh, there were some who did not believe that Christ was physically resurrected, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. G- and and Paul had to really make an argument. He had to make a case, a whole right. chapter. Right. It's a whole chapter of First Corinthians to making the case that Jesus truly was resurrected. Well, if Luke was indeed traveling around with Paul, then this might have been part of the discussions sure. of and and would have maybe embedded itself into Luke's theology sure. as, as, necess- there, as necessary. There does seem to have been yeah. a question that was raised by that that was not settled uh, until perhaps into the second right. century. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well. And it comes up again, actually, with our uh, a little bit with our um, reformers. I mean, we yeah. you know we have these waves of of wondering who Jesus is. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. now, now, interestingly, when Jesus said, invites them to touch him and see that he you know has flesh and bones, uh, the verb is say la fesate, and it occurs. It's a rare verb in the New Testament, but also you find it in First John one one, which has a similar kind of. Um, uh, line of thinking to what we find in Luke's account here of Jesus' appearance to the disciples. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in First John one one, the elder or the author of we don't know the the right, author is right. strictly speaking anonymous, but you know First John one one begins with we declare with you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, mm-hmm. what we have looked at and touched with our hands, and it's the same verb say la fesate. You know, there seems to have been this this um, concern in some portions of the early church to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection was something that was physical. You know, I'm thinking about words, and uh, Alan's an expert with words, of course. But I'm curious about this particular touch. Is this is there something unique about the touch, or something unique about this translation? Are, are we missing something in the English translation there? I don't think so. Okay. I would I would say it's just a it's just an unusual word for touch. You know, there are other Greek words that are used for touch more commonly in the New Testament. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, okay. So moving on, let's explain the disciples' reaction. 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's really intriguing to me that despite all the ways in which Jesus demonstrates the physical reality of his presence with them in Luke's account, I mean, like I said, Luke's account really kind of goes over the top. The disciples' response remains mixed. Uh, Luke says, mm-hmm. in their joy, they were still disbelieving and still wondering. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's a, it's a genitive absolute construction serving as a temporal qualifier for the main verb. Literally, Luke says, while they were disbelieving from their joy mm-hmm. and marveling. And the verb here, disbelieve, recalls the initial reaction of the disciples to the women's report of the empty tomb in Luke 24, mm-hmm. 11. They didn't believe right. what they were saying. And it really, to me, I found it surprising to find this uh, particular verb in uh, in this place because apistuo mm-hmm. is a verb that's used in the New Testament in a rather, typically a rather negative way. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, thaumazo, which is the verb for uh, being amazed or wondering, mm-hmm. Um, it's a fairly common way yeah. in which uh, the Gospels describe the response of the disciples and the crowds and others to what Jesus was doing. Hmm. So, um, But what I find interesting is that in comparison with uh, other Gospels which present Jesus, um, the resurrected Jesus appearing to his disciples, that's all it takes. Exactly. I kept thinking of how human this is, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many yes, of us indeed. identify with these disciples more than the ones like, oh, hey, he's risen, cool. Uh, I could see that. I, I, I can experience that as I read it. I can experience this joy, and I can't believe it. So, I, I mean, I don't know if that's why he wrote it this way in particular, but I think it's very human. It does seem much more realistic, mm-hmm. you know, than, than all of a sudden you have this appearance of this person that seems to be like Jesus, but maybe not like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, in the story of the disciples to Emmaus, they don't even recognize him until he breaks the bread, Yeah, you know? And so, um, I liken that to a celebrity could like walk by in front right. of me. I would have no <laughs> right. clue. I mean, even if it looks, ex- I would assume, Oh, that looks like so-and-so instead of actually having some ability to recognize because my yeah. mind had already buried jesus mm-hmm. so sure. again sure. i think that's also human i think people are really hard on those two that didn't recognize me I'm like i'm sorry i think that's pretty human <laughs> oh i agree i agree and i think that's what luke is trying to convey here is that the disciples continued to struggle with their faith just as they had when jesus did his marvelous things mm-hmm. uh, among them in his earthly ministry yeah 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 all right moving on so then we talk so we had the proof the bodily proof text. And then the second thing is about the whole scriptures. Um, that seems to be the other thing that Jesus brings in is um, the scriptures being fulfilled. So t- talk about this a little bit. Well, and this seems to be really, in Luke's gospel, this seems to be one of the main purposes of the appearance to the disciples. He, you know, In Luke's gospel, Luke emphasizes that Jesus clearly demonstrates that he's physically present with them. But also then um, Jesus basically reiterates that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so there is this reference to the Hebrew Bible and to the scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus' life. Now, you know, as we've said before, we might wish that Luke had cited some of the specific passages from the Hebrew Bible here, but we're left to trace the quotations and allusions in the New Testament to determine which of them Jesus may have in mind. And really, there's there's a there's a fair number of those, yeah. and there's some that really stand out. So mm-hmm. it's not that difficult. 
Now, one interesting thing is uh, the fact that Jesus refers to the law of Moses, the prophets, and the mm-hmm. Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hebrew, the canon of the Hebrew Bible was not settled until the Council of Jamnia in uh, 90. Um, but already before that time, uh, there may have been references to the three mm-hmm. main sections mm-hmm. of the Hebrew Bible, the law, prophets, and right, the writings. Right. Nevertheless, this phrase... The law, the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms only occurs here in the New Testament. Interesting. And um, one of the one of the scholars I was reading said this may be one of the earliest occurrences of this particular reference to the threefold division of the Hebrew Bible as the law, the mm-hmm. prophets, and the Psalms. Um, the usual phrase in the New Testament is simply the law and the prophets. Now, thinking about this, I mean, if this was in ninety, and just remind us again when Luke wrote this. Luke probably wrote this in the in the latter in the in the last or you know around seventy five to so, eighty A.D. Right. maybe maybe even a little later. So, you so can it's see about this, the same time. You can see this discussion beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, in, in, very interesting. All right, um, let's move on. Um, so when Luke says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, what does he mean? Well, I think this is where really. This is where the disciples really begin to get what's going on. This is where the disciples' faith is awakened. So Luke says that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I think the key to this was for them to grasp that thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Luke's theology, I think that seems to be sort of a summary of the gospel message. And so perhaps also, I think Luke sees that whole statement about the Messiah suffering, rising from the dead, repentance and forgiveness of sins being proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That seems to be the interpretive key to opening mm-hmm. um, one's understanding to the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, I think it's in- interesting that the idea of opening seems to really define Luke's account of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. tomb is opened in verse 2. The Emmaus disciples' eyes were open so they could recognize mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. in verse 31. Um, they comment that their hearts were burning while Jesus was opening the scriptures for them mm-hmm. in verse 32. And here Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So in connection with the account of Jesus' encounter with the Emmaus disciples, I think Luke specifies the content of that opening in, in, in the earlier part, in that earlier episode, by saying that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. This seems to be a, a yeah. shorter summary of what Jesus says uh-huh, here uh-huh. in this passage. And so... You know, this seems to be then the key for them, not only uh, for them to be able to understand the Hebrew Bible, but also to be able to finally come to faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I will say, you know, this is an approach to the Hebrew Bible that can be tricky, but it can also be truly fundamental to our hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know it's not good exegetical practice to try to find Jesus in every nook and cranny of the Hebrew Bible, as many have done throughout the history of the church. But I think it is essential for a Christian to read the Hebrew Bible, both in its original context 
and in light of the interpretive lens of Jesus' life yeah, and teachings. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the end result then of this opening their minds to understand scriptures is that in Luke's account, it seems to take more than the empty tomb and the appearance of the resurrected Jesus to change the disciples' bewilderment into faith. It takes Jesus opening uh-huh, their minds to uh-huh. understand the scriptures. Think- and, and this is really kind of the pattern we see throughout the New Testament is that yep. it, it takes it takes um, not only an experience, but also the scriptures yes. to be able yes. to combine together to produce faith. Yes. And that is kind of one of the questions I had later on for us to discuss actually was this, you know, kind of this twofold piece. And um, uh, in a way, it's kind of exciting to hear it in this conversation um, because there's kind of an aha moment with that when mm-hmm. you realize it. And then, but, and then when you see how that can play out actually in your ministry. So, well, and, um, and throughout the New Testament, this is this is the way yes, in which exactly. the New Testament writers exactly. um, uh, address uh, the, the early church. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they bring up the experience of the resurrected Jesus, not only on the part of the apostles, but also in their own lives through exactly. the Spirit. Yeah, but then they they add to that scripture. Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's and, and Calvin picks up on this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we'll, we'll see. This I would again. be surprised yeah. if he didn't. <laughs> no, he absolutely does. Yeah. And so that there's this kind of combination, and well, because there's going to be people in the 16th century that deny scripture. Mm-hmm. They just are looking for this whole spiritualist mm-hmm. um, kind of experience. And he's like, um, no. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's it's it pops up there as well. But um, you know, and it, but as we talk, it's it's here. It's like open as clearly as possible and yet in, in some strange way you still have to explore it or mm. it has to it reveals this way it's not mm. like it says it's, it's not, not like an automatic an instruction thing book yeah, yeah it's and not so, an automatic thing either either to just see jesus and wow boom there's faith right or to just open the scriptures, the scriptures and, are going to produce faith right exactly it takes both and i and so it, we could talk about it later, but I think it's important for um, how art and we understand yes. faith. You know, when yes. we just hand out Bibles to folks, right. they probably aren't necessarily going to open up and find God in there. It's Even not if they do obvious. read through them, they may not. They, they may not find anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So moving on, um, tell us about. You know, obviously, Luke is a two-part thing, right? We go into Acts. So tell us about the summary in the book of Acts. To what extent is this part of the mission of the gospeler to set the stage for his next book? Well, the summary, the summary that we're talking about here is in verses 46 and 47. We have this summary of Jesus' commission to the disciples. It's, it's, it's not only the key to the scriptures, the, the summary that we read above, you know, that thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be claimed in his name in all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is not only the key to understanding the Hebrew Bible, it is not only the heart of the gospel message, it is also Jesus' commission to his disciples. Now, um, in, in fact, Again, the language of this particular commission is very different from what we find, for example, in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. It's also very different from language that's commonly used in Luke's gospel. It's very similar to the language used in the speeches of Acts. Mm-hmm. And so it mm-hmm. seems that perhaps um, uh, while both Matthew and Luke convey a commission to proclaim the good news to all nations, Luke's version that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations is closer to the summary of the gospel that we find in the speeches of Acts. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, again, I think we have to note that this must occur beginning in, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. And this is something that Luke emphasizes. One of the things you find when you compare Luke and Acts, you know, in, in Luke and Acts, you have this, this, this theology of mission. Um, in, in one sense, um, you, you see everything in Luke's gospel flowing toward, moving toward Jerusalem inevitably. And, and there's some, there are various places in, in the gospel uh, that, that, you know, mm-hmm. especially when Jesus begins his journey, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It seems like there is this intentional movement toward Jerusalem. And then in Acts, everything begins in Jerusalem and moves out mm-hmm, from there, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, this is a theology of mission that that um, is gets really more developed in the book of Acts. Um, and we, you know, we think of Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, there is some precedent for this also in um, Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Isaiah has some references, like Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where all nations come streaming to Jerusalem. It seems like Jerusalem is the center from which God's salvation mm-hmm. goes out to all the earth. You know, I'm thinking of this kind of historically um, and also the importance of Jerusalem. I mean, is this, do you see this as, as a historical kind of call or do you see this as more of a metaphorical kind of thing for the church? It's hard to say because, um, you know, Mark and Matthew both seem to imply that Jesus was going to meet his disciples in Galilee, mm-hmm. and Matthew, Matthew, basically the the only commission they get is in is when he appears to them on the mountain in in Galilee. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so we that's one tradition that we have in the new in the early church is that Jesus you know met with his disciples and commissioned them in Galilee. We have Luke and John and Acts that seem to focus more on Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and I think most people have tended to just kind of again just kind of. Um, harmonize them, just kind of combine them all together and, and think, well, maybe the Galilee thing was a preliminary deal and the real thing happened mm-hmm, in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. That's not the way Matthew or Mark read. They, they right. both read, you know, Galilee, only right. Galilee. They right. don't know anything about appearances in Jerusalem. And so it does seem that in both John and Luke, especially, and Luke really is the one who, who develops this theology mm-hmm. of, of Jerusalem as uh, the central point for, for God's salvation purposes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that a historical point? I don't know. It's certainly a, th- a theological point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it goes along really with one of the main emphases in Luke and Acts, which is to say, is to show that both Jesus' ministry and um, the ministry of the early church in Acts are in complete continuity with God's work in the people of Israel, mm-hmm. in and through the people mm-hmm. of Israel mm-hmm. in the past. And so I think Jerusalem becomes then a key point in that continuity mm-hmm. for, for Luke's theology. Yeah, yeah that so, makes yes, sense. So, yes, it is a theological, theological point. point. Is it a historical point? I don't know that we can ha- answer that question. No, as I, as I got thinking about that, and I get, you know, the problems of Jerusalem, and, you know, Jerusalem is divided into three faiths now, and, you know, I think there's been this kind of historically, this kind of strange space for Jerusalem that has maybe given us a, a location more importance than it should. But I think you're right with the theological. I'm very, um, very excited. I'm not from, I hadn't thought about that, that the, the church um, would expand from there. That, that provides a really cool way to think about Jerusalem. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So All let's, right. we'll get back together here. And we're going to talk about some reformers. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
We're back, friends, and I'm just going to jump right in and ask Christy, how did the Reformers approach this interesting passage in Luke's Gospel? Sure. So we find it in a couple places. I mean, um, they preach on it. It's an Easter um, it's an Easter theme. It's an, um, when they also, we see it in commentaries. So I found a couple themes that kind of went throughout it. And really, um, one of the first ones that I think gained a lot of importance is the nature of the risen Christ and what that really means. And I think, you know, as readers ourselves, is this, a, you know, we think this isn't a real, this is an apparition. And then we are proven, no, it's a real Christ. And so they have the same kind of questions that a modern reader would have with it. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one of those mysteries of God. Um, and the, the, they are fully aware that the disciples are going to have those same kind of questions that we have. Um, and uh, so how do you make sense of, for example, the wounds of Christ? Uh, how do you make sense of this um, in terms of the perfection of Christ, ultimately? Yeah, I guess if he, w- if he were risen from the dead, you would expect that his wounds would be healed. Exactly. And yeah. so really, um, Calvin believes this is just something that Jesus didn't have to do, but did for the uh-huh. benefit of um, the it disciples, was a, so it was accommodating to their it was accommodating weakness. to yeah. the weakness, yeah. yeah, which is very interesting. And I, I think it's important to know in their minds, just like maybe in our minds, Christ was hanging on the cross, dead, buried, done. I mean, they, even though they have these promises of resurrection, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And, and we, we've talked about this mystery. What they didn't recognize it; their their brains can't comprehend right. what they're seeing. Right. Um, and so this is one of the things in accommodation. Likewise, so with the food, that this this um, risen Christ did not have to eat, but did eat um, for the sake of the disciples. And there's been discussion, and of course, oh, well, they eat food, so what happens to the food? Does this you know, risen Christ have to, uh, to digest the food? And it seems to be the consensus is no. Um, that, and they, they really looked at, you know, remember when the, the visitors came to see Abraham and they also ate these angelic figures and, um, that this is something that God can do. (laughs) I must confess when I was working through the passage, I found myself wondering, well, it's been several days since Jesus ate anything. I wonder (laughs) if he was really starving. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, some of these questions, um, appeared to them, but they, you know, they didn't, they didn't. Well, they addressed it. They didn't make too big a deal out about it. They didn't mm. spend... I read something that said something to the effect of that in some parts of the early church, uh, they believed that there was fire from God that came and consumed the food, you know, in, in within the resurrected body of Jesus or something like that. Yeah, so they have to make sense of it. And, <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I think this is a, a huge issue today, a huge issue then. How do you make sense of these things, which are, are, are divine? Well, and I would say in response to that, that's kind of missing the point, because the point is to prove that Jesus really has been raised from right. the dead. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So another major theme it, that comes in here, well, they kind of blend together are the, the disciples and then ultimately the sovereignty of God. So let me explain how this comes in. Um, they're, they're kind of annoyed, but they kind of understand these disciples because these disciples should believe in a resurrected Christ. They well, yeah, they're be. the apostles, right? They've exactly. got to be the example. <laughs> they should not be so dismayed. They, you know, he made this prediction. This should not be a problem. And, and all, almost all of them are pretty critical of them in this way. And yet at the same way, they think that that is in part 
um, just to remind us of our human nature. So the disciples, even as those chosen, um, are still fully human sinning people. And, and so it kind of fits that concern of theirs about this hierarchy within the Roman Catholic tradition, that these are just as average right. Joes as you and me. They weren't some special spiritual giants that started the apostolic succession. Exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of a huge piece in there. And then Calvin ties this in with sovereignty of God, which we always talk about as kind of his main theological mm-hmm. push and saying, look, um, these disciples can't do this on their own. They can only understand who Christ is in their full weakness and in their sinfulness, sure. that, they, that they have to rely on on. God's grace and and the the work of the Holy Spirit in them. Well, and that would make only make sense from from Calvin's point of view because I, I believe I mean it, this was a the idea that it takes it takes more than just human powers of comprehension to, to come to faith. That was one that predated Calvin. I mean, it mm-hmm. went back to right, Augustine, right, right, you know, right. but you need the illumination of the spirit along with the word to be able to uh, uh, respond to God in faith. And, and that just makes right. sense that Calvin would right. go there. Yeah. Another piece with Calvin and, uh, that I, I can put us here is when I'm reading Calvin and I'm reading Calvin's, um, um, commentaries and theology. One thing I noticed is Calvin very much is um, somebody who who thinks in Trinity more than a lot of our others, more than Luther even. And so I think that's really, really interesting is that he doesn't leave out the agency of the Holy Spirit mm. and the Holy Spirit has to come in. Luther doesn't really address that so much. Luther is really more, um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we've heard this before, Luther's theology of the cross, Luther's theology of the cross, as that's pushing through and it's really about um, Christ's work on the cross for us. And, and mm. so when you get to, and we mentioned this last week, um, the Holy Communion, and we're talking about you know, the presence of Christ. And Luther saying, ah, ubiquity of Christ uh, everywhere can be at the right hand of God and can be at the table at the mm. same time. But in, in Calvin's world, that really takes away the role of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. which can be present with us while Jesus is at the right hand of God. It's the entirety of who God is yeah. that's there, and not yeah. so worried about just Jesus. It's like kind of one of the things we, we didn't really address that in the um, in the passage in my segment because that was outside the parameters of the of the con- of the of the passage. Mm-hmm. We probably should have gone ahead through the end of the chapter because that's where you find you know Jesus mm-hmm. telling them to stay in Jerusalem until they are clothed with the promise Ex- of the Father. Exactly. And that's the, that's the emphasis on the Spirit's presence mm-hmm. here. And yeah. of course, and that's what moves us in Acts and the you right. know, coming of the Holy Spirit. And it, it, it is an interesting thing. And, and when I think about my Presbyterian background, and, and particularly my um, seminary training, it's worship Trinity, worship Trinity, worship tw- mm-hmm. Trinity. So that, and I could see this in Calvin, and I could see it in Calvin in this particular discussion. For sure. I think another um, piece in here that I want to um, talk about is this whole sending out this mission idea. Uh, One of the questions Alan had posed in our our preparation was whether any of the reformers paid attention to this uniqueness of Luke's account. Now, remember, (laughs) they want to collapse everything. Right. And so. To pull stuff out, I mean, there's there's places all the way through both um, Luther and Calvin where it's like, oh boy, oh we make sense of this. This all kind of falls together. We can we can explain this. They all can the harmonize way. it exactly. with the best of them. <laughs> they are really good at that, and I think it makes sense with their mindset at that time. Um, 
but there are a couple. The, the main person was Johannes Brentz, and I brought up him before. Um, and he was the one that said, look, this, this mission of Luke um, um, really he emphasizes Jerusalem, like we talked about, and the, the pushing up from Jerusalem as, and, and that kind of unique, um, that kind of unique sense of taking care of, uh, of the mission right there where they're at, and then it moves from out. And also the uniqueness then pushes the disciples t- to have that specific role, that they kind of represent that, that core. They represent that people that Jesus came to and it pushes out from there. So that a little different um, emphasis. The other ones didn't, didn't make as big a deal about it. Yeah. They probably just harmonized it with, with uh, what we normally know as the great commission exactly. in Matthew 28. Exactly. Um, and then um, another sense, another one other theme that I saw um, was just this idea of, of peace. And so Luther was, you know, we talked about how they were kind of hard on the disciples. Well, but this resurrected Jesus ultimately brings them a lot of peace. So mm-hmm. it's this, he really ties into the pain and the fear and um, emotional Luther um, and that Jesus can bring them this sense of peace. And mm-hmm. um, I thought that was nice. It, it was very comforting. Now, I did look at his 1524th sermon in particular, um, suggesting that, hey, these people have the same pain I had, and here Jesus was and brought comfort, even though they should have known better. But I loved, I loved, uh, uh, another thing I think was interesting, though, uh, for Luther, um, you know, there's this sense of, okay, they're commissioned to go out and spread the gospel. And I know um, there's this idea of, okay, well, everyone's going to hear, everyone's going to, you know, uh, uh, believe. We have this, we have this kind of positive sense that our effectiveness, if you will, depends on how many people become Christian, right? If we can mark it off. And he says, look, that doesn't matter. And it's always going to look like um, nobody's heard. And he said, look, mm. look at all the people that, you know, suppose became Christian in, in a book of Acts there. And he said, still didn't make an ultimate, we still, still seemed that we could look out and saw evil as being more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's how it's always going to be. So I thought, and it was a weird way to comfort us in saying, look, um, you're not necessarily going to be able to look out and always see um, the impact. The effects, and right. so Well, and that's certainly true to life. It is, it is. And so I pulled this quote from him, which I think you might like. It says, hence, the gospel must not be measured by the multitude that hear, but by the small company that receive it. They indeed, indeed appear as nothing. They are despised and persecuted and yet God secretly works in them. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah definitely I, nice. I liked that. You know, and uh, it's almost a bit comical to me that um, the way the reformers, you know, it's like they have to somehow um, account for the fact that these, especially the 12, they're, they're the ones that, that Jesus uses to establish the church. Mm-hmm. And it's their witness that becomes the witness of Scripture, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and yet, in this passage, they don't seem to be these great exemplars of faith. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm one of the people, I whenever I find something like that that seems almost contrary to what you might expect, um, I, I, find that, I find that also... Um, uh, intriguing and and I'm really attracted to that because to me it has the ring of authenticity. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem to ring true to life as well, mm-hmm. and so I'm a little bit. I find it a little bit comical that 
some folks, you know, especially in the early church, or some of the church fathers and, and perhaps some of the reformers almost feel like they have to rescue the reputation of the apostles by chiding them here for not believing. Oh, I, I think that's true. I remember you're dealing in a world where these people are all sainted and people are yeah. worshiping and they're yeah. saying, look, these people also, it, Christ appeared to them, um, but Christ can appear to everybody else. And mm-hmm. so, it, and, and there's some emphasis on um, uh, this idea, again, uh, <laughs> Uh, of of how how people are like we talked about before um that they had these signs but they also had scripture so that's mm-hmm. the scripture piece comes back in and i, I didn't actually write that down in my notes but they talk about um calvin in particular talks about look um they needed these signs these these things to be done sure. that they could see but it was the scripture and which by which they also um needed to come to Christ. And, and that's available to everybody. Mm-hmm. That's not available mm-hmm. just to these secret few. And um, uh, they, um, th- they didn't spend as much a time, time in this, these passages attacking the Roman Catholic tradition per se, but it all ties back into who Christ is mm-hmm. and what Christ's work was. Mm-hmm. And that's for the salvation, um, um, ultimately for the salvation of, of, of sinners. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, Again, it, it seems true to life experience. Uh, we do have experiences of Christ mm-hmm. in our lives, but it, it takes more than just that to, to create faith. And even when we have the experience and the scripture, we still struggle sometimes right. with right. our ability to really say, you know, how can this be? You know, we find mm-hmm. ourselves bewildered. And so, you know, again, I think it's it's true to life, and I appreciated the I appreciated. I'm you know I'm still learning to appreciate Calvin more and more every every time we talk. You know, I think, <laughs> because you know, I like his approach. So he's kind of an interesting character that way, and yet I can shake my head at him often. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Um, but um, he clearly was a very very important figure. Um, yeah. Well, and I church. love this. I love this idea that that Luther. Um, brought out that, um, you know, that you don't measure the success of the gospel by how many people respond. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, that sounds true to life as well. And mm-hmm. I appreciated his, um, his uh, I guess, empathy um, with <laughs> the disciples in their struggle to believe. I, I did too. I did too. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting space. And, uh, well, I'm happy to share it with you. And I think it gives us some some things to talk about in our next section. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks Christy. Thanks. Hi, everybody. We are back. And uh, Ellen and I took a little break, and I got lamenting a little bit how I was struggling this week, kind of finding maybe what I was looking for. And I explained that there are commentaries and yet, because the commentaries are collapsed, sometimes um, you have trouble finding all the kind of detail of analysis that you think you're going to find. They're more concerned about writing off this or that because it fit into this general narrative. And the other thing that I find, or maybe someone's trying to make some big theological piece, and they are kind of cutting and pasting little pr- proof texts um, and so you don't really get a full analysis of the text, but rather you're fitting it into a broader theology. And so there are weeks like this where um, I sometimes find lacking for what I keep hoping to find. And so I thought we'd talk a little bit about why this is the case. So I'm going to let Alan take it away. He has some um, analysis from the early church fathers that maybe can 
help us? Well, yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the church fathers and if you look at some of their sermons, especially, or even their theological works, I mean, that was the method for creating theology in the early church for centuries. You just basically took a hodgepodge of, of Bible verses from all over the place. You know, there's, and there may, sometimes there may not be, seem to be much rhyme or reason as to why they quote the verses they do. And so, I, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that's what you ran into with the reformers mm-hmm. because that was a long-established tradition mm-hmm. of of Bible interpretation, and really, frankly, there are people today, today. You know, you you, there's some you of bet. these quote-unquote Bible preachers that basically what they're doing is stringing together a, a, a string of unrelated texts that just make the point that they want to make. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's often taken out of context, which can be a real problem, which we've seen with some of the doctrines the churches have adopted. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and so for me, you know, when I run across that, you know, I guess these days it seems to me that our method is very different. We're taught, you know, Mm -hmm. you interpret the, the, the text in light of its context. And it's really strange because that's probably one of the oldest principles of Bible interpretation that we have. It goes back beyond Jesus. Mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. was one of the one of the principles that the rabbis taught. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, all True. the major figures throughout True. the church, when they taught how to interpret the Bible, they said, you read it in light of its historical context. Or, And some of them even began to say, even in the Reformation era, you read it in light of its literary context. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then when, when push comes to shove, in practice, they fall back on this proof texting. Right, method. right. Well, um, I mean, right. so you're seeing the shift right from you know, if we look at even Luther's education, Luther's still really educated primarily as a scholastic yeah. kind of, of, of learner. You're yeah. seeing the shift as the humanist uh, ideas come into education and then and they take place over the scholastic kind of traditions. We're seeing a shift from scholastic um, um, style learning to humanist style learning. And it's shifting what the mindset is. So Luther... It's kind of shifting back, it seems to me. And I'm not going to say any names, but I was in a conversation with a, a fellow who was a business teacher telling me that, you know, things like history and things like uh, language are just going to disappear because they're not necessary. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh, it did happen. <laughs> what could be more necessary? Right. What could be more necessary? But this is what happened. I mean... When you really talk about the educational program that came in with humanism, it, you really shut up how people were learning, and yet you have reformers that, especially the first generation, who are basically scholastically trained, yeah. so they're still, they're still using this the style yeah. exactly, yeah. which explains why Luther and Calvin seem so much different. Because remember, arguable that Calvin's a humanist trained. Um, theologian as opposed to Luther. Well, and, and, you know, my training uh, goes against that grain as well. My training was, you know, you look at a text like the one we're looking at in the context of Luke's gospel, you take into consideration the fact that Luke and Acts probably go together in some way. You look at the whole New Testament. You look at the whole gospel tradition. You, you look at it in the context of the Bible as a whole, you know, and you work, you work to place it in that context. Now, I think one of the reasons why people depend on this hodgepodge method is because all you have to do is is look up a word in a in a, in a concordance or just these days all you got to do is type a word into exactly. your bible your bible program or your bible website and it'll bring up a bunch of texts and so you just string those texts together and mm-hmm. and that's your sermon, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a very 
sorry, in my opinion, it's a very lazy mm-hmm. approach to biblical yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot more time and effort and work to really try to, to do justice to what, what Luke's gospel has to say about Jesus' appearance in the context of Luke's gospel. And that's where we get insights like in comparison with the other gospels. Right. You know, in Luke's gospel, it takes more than just the appearance of the resurrected Jesus Mm -hmm. to um, produce faith in the disciples. It takes um, their, their encounter with the resurrected Jesus plus the fact that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture and then they were able to come to faith. And and we, we wouldn't really see that unless we were comparing it with the with the other gospel right. accounts. Let me ask you a question. When you are when you are preparing something for preaching, do you spend a lot of time and effort trying to explain that this is Luke's perspective? I mean, what's I, the best way? Uh, well, I mean, I think I think it depends on your congregation. It depends on your relationship with your congregation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm in my seventh year here. Mm-hmm. And I've had seven years to develop a good rapport with my congregation. They know that that I um, seek to be a faithful Bible interpreter. They, I think, for the most part, trust me as their pastor. Um, and so I don't hesitate these days, these mm-hmm. days, to, to um, like, for example, we had um, Mark's account of the temptation, and we talked about how that differed from Matthew and mm-hmm, Luke. Mm-hmm. I brought that out in my sermon, mm-hmm. and I, won't, I, I do that because, I mean, and, and, you know, the way I set it up was to say, you know, we're all familiar with Jesus' temptation in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Mark presents it a little bit differently, and if we're going to treat Mark's gospel seriously as a gospel, we need to look at what mm-hmm. Mark has to say. Maybe, maybe, maybe in your first month of a new pastorate, that might not be... <laughs> something to drop on folks that might be a little bit hard for them to hear but i think once you build up that sort of sense of relationship with your people that they trust you and they understand you're not trying to just um right. uh, uh throw everything they ever believed out the window but you're you're really seriously trying to interact with scripture then you can introduce them to those kind of ideas you know i just keep thinking about keep thinking about congregation as a whole a lot of folks really don't know their scriptures very well and so they're not participating in bible studies they're not reading on their own so it's interesting and i I got thinking about this recently because i'm inclined to describe these differences in fact for my faith building that's huge It, Mm -hmm. it provides more in my world authenticity to the faith itself that you have these different accounts and they have different positions but i think for some people it's really threatening yeah it's it's all it's all harmonious there's no there's no uniqueness there's no difference in scripture it's Mm -hmm. all saying the same exact thing Mm -hmm. yeah i call it i call it a flat view of scripture Mm -hmm. that every bible verse says the same thing and has the same value and when you read through the bible you realize that's not the landscape of scripture at all the the landscape of scripture is peaks and valleys yeah and and you know they go down different paths and the the gospel writers they go down different paths and you know uh, just taking again my the example of my sermon on on Mark's temptation, you know, I brought out the fact that in Mark's gospel, 
um, you know, Jesus isn't really, he might not have been hungry because the, the angels were, were, were serving him literally. Um, but he also might not have been alone because the spirit was the one that drove him out in the wilderness. And so, you know, to me, it was like Jesus was being sustained in this intense conflict with, um, the evil one, uh, over the 40 day period by God's presence and by God's grace. Mm -hmm, And, you mm -hmm. know, I, I drew the analogy that that's like, that's like our experience with temptation. You know, we, we, we don't face temptation alone either. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so to me, I found yeah, a, a yeah, really yeah. kind of a, um, um, a helpful pastoral point mm-hmm. to, to calling attention to the, to the uniqueness, uniqueness of, of Mark's right. account. And I think you can here too. I if think we you can. draw out, for example, that all the disciples are bewildered and yes. you've got a very different, and I think... I think a much more human approach than, oh, they saw the risen Jesus and it was great. I think Luke is really hitting (laughs) into- Seems more realistic. Yeah, 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 it seems more realistic. Now, again, you can probably smooth that over saying, well, they all really meant that, but only Luke said that. And I'm like, no. No, they didn't all say that. And I think it it makes sense within us as, as, as storytellers, as, as people trying to understand our human experience in- as, as we encounter God. And so I, I, I think it's much richer myself. But. I do too. I do too. And, and, you know, as I said before, I think it's more true to our experience as well. Now, I think it depends on where people are in their faith development. Yeah. Because there are, there are adults. There are people who live their whole lives who stay in that stage of faith development where they don't really question anything. Right. But a lot of us, either in college or in seminary, you know, sometime in our 20s or 30s, we began to ask questions about our faith. Mm -hmm. And once a person begins to ask questions about their faith, then, you know, it, it seems like the ground has, has, has disappeared from beneath your feet. And, and you know, you wonder, uh, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to get through this? Mm-hmm. And to me, the fact that Jesus' disciples were face-to-face with the risen Christ right. in bodily form, right, right. and they still were bewildered by it. What? And that, that is a comfort to me that, you know, yeah. we who also hopefully have encountered Christ in our lives, and we have hopefully had a lot of help with, with Scripture in terms of helping us to come to faith, yet we still struggle at times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm also struck, all of them, they're all there in this story. They're all struggling. They're seeing this experience. It's yes. the same thing. It's, it's not, not like just it's, Thomas. It's not just the women who come, uh, even though they should have trusted the women. Sorry. But <laughs> it's not just the women that saw him and they're like, okay, we didn't see that. I mean, they're all there together and they're all they're, they're all, all in this space. Right. 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 I, you know, I'm thinking about our, our, our discussion of Thomas uh, last time. It, it's not just Thomas. It's, it's right. you know, it's, right. uh, it's everybody. Yeah. And they're all they're all yeah, they're rejoicing, but the, at the same time, you know, they're 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 struggling to the, make sense out the, of this. It doesn't make sense. So one of the things that came to mind when I was thinking about this as I was looking at the passage, I didn't really mention it in my segment, but in Luke's introduction in, in Luke one, one through four, he talks about how he's 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 sort of tracing out the, the accounts of the eyewitnesses, and he's he's starting from the beginning to um, to write 
um, a an orderly account mm-hmm. for Theophilus accurately. Now, not all English translations uh, have that word in them, but "acrobos" is the word in Luke one three. Acrobos. Oh wow! Yeah. And and so it's like I I see Luke. <laughs> Really trying to be accurate here yeah. with his with the way he takes the testimony of the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word, as he mm-hmm. calls them in, in Luke 1. Uh, and, and I see him really trying to be faithful and accurate mm-hmm. in the way he reports it, in, in the fact that, you know, he reports that all the disciples yeah. have trouble believing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, and, well, and think about this. There would be reason potentially to write this so that they they didn't question, right? I mean, what do so many people tell us? You can't question. To question, does that somehow does that somehow lessen the experience? Is that does that mean that does that hurt our ability to believe? And yet, I think Luke is more in tune, maybe with the the human reality that it's natural to disbelieve what does not make sense with your senses. Well, and in fact, I have come to the conclusion that. Um, it's those things that sort of you're not expecting to see in in the gospels especially mm-hmm. that to me demonstrate their authenticity it reminds me of the, the of it, it, this is so good. This is just, this is so incredible that no one actually could have made this up. You know, we have right, that happen exactly. all the time, right? No one could actually made this up. This is. <laughs> they wouldn't have made that up. And yet. there's lots of places like that in the scriptures, yeah. right? You know, you have these other uh, snippets that just really show to me the authenticity of the gospel tradition. Right, right. And, and it makes it, um, of course, and that's what makes it exciting to discuss too. How fun mm-hmm. would this be if we, I mean, if we just had something kind of raw factual handed down to us well and that's why i've always i've always said to to my students when i've talked about the gospels is would you rather have the gospels or would you rather have video recording of of jesus ministry from start to finish and they would always say the video but i said many people witnessed jesus ministry firsthand and didn't believe but the 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 gospels they give us two things. Number one, they with the with the variations of emphasis, they give mm-hmm. us sort of this three dimensional, full living color uh, depiction of Jesus, mm-hmm. right, from yeah. different yeah. perspectives. But they also give us the key to faith. Yes, you know, yes. and and in Mark's gospel, we saw that with the identification of Jesus as the Son of God. Right. With in Luke's gospel today, we see that with the fact that Jesus has to open their mind mm-hmm. to understand exactly. the scriptures exactly. so that they can have faith. Yeah. And so enjoy everybody. I think, um, wow, my brain is saying hooray and to celebrate and because we have these gospels to get us to think and uh, enjoy your preparation. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks, yeah, Christy. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.